is our pleasure to welcome you to our podcast on knowledge production. Our discussion today will focus on what constitutes legitimate forms of knowledge. The episode will be divided into three sections. The first section will explore the factors that affect the legitimacy of knowledge and impact factor, as well as global standards of knowledge production. The second section will explore the link between finance and knowledge production, inclusive of both the link between donor funding and knowledge production and the financialization and commercialization of higher education. The third section makes the case for non-Western knowledge traditions and highlights the role of one research center in knowledge production. Then, the role of language in knowledge production will be discussed. We urge you, the listener, to reflect on what comes to mind when you think of legitimate forms of knowledge. I think that this is such a relevant discussion in this era of fake news. But reflect on this. And after the discussion, juxtapose the answers to this question pre and post podcast, and hopefully we would have sparked at least a thought process for you here today. So we asked several students who are currently pursuing higher education, what comes to mind when they think of legitimate forms of knowledge? And here are some of their responses. Hmm. For me, knowledge is based on evidence and it has to be something that is reproducible irrespective of the language it was produced in. Hmm. For me, knowledge is objective and broadly applicable as it is based on scientific data, but it is also subjective and is only applicable in specific contexts because it's based on social norms or political opinions. So I'll preface this by saying I'm not an expert on this matter. So take what I will, what I say with a grain of salt. But I suppose, I mean, really anything could could be knowledge. Um, I mean, outside of outside of the news and academia, TV shows, books, conversations with people, what they have, their their experiences, all to me. Uh, count as knowledge? What comes to my mind is something that is published in peer-reviewed journals or books. So to kick things off, we'll begin by having a discussion around the factors which influence how knowledge produced from different regions is perceived in the global knowledge production system. And this feeds into larger discussions around which knowledge is considered as legitimate knowledge. So one of the factors that we've identified as having an influence on the perception of what knowledge is considered as legitimate is a general impact factor. Developed in 1955, the impact factor is a quantitative concept that seeks to determine the intellectual influence of a journal by establishing its contribution in a given area of knowledge. However, over the last couple of years, the impact factor has been used to signal the quality of journals, often to the detriment of the journals produced in Africa. This is because journals worldwide are ranked based on their impact factor, with the ones receiving the most citations over an established period of time being considered as better, and in most cases more legitimate than journals with lower rankings. As we can already establish from this discussion, this sort of classification has wider implications on the global process of knowledge production. For instance, the impact factor will determine which knowledge is viewed as having an intellectual influence or contributing to the process of knowledge production in different disciplines. Additionally, it will also determine the type of knowledge that is produced in different regions based on the subjects that gain the interests of other scholars through citations. 
And finally, the impact factor also highlights the inequalities in research and the process of knowledge production between the Global North and the Global South, with journals from the lo low impact with low impact factors, majorly from the Global South, having been considered as not contributing to the global process of knowledge production. Because of this, authors and researchers from the Global South are often excluded from the global knowledge production systems. We find this approach of using the impact factor to determine the legitimacy of knowledge produced faulty, mainly because the impact factor is calculated as calculated does not speak to the quality or the legitimacy of the cited work. For instance, journals produced by research centers such as Codricia, despite ranking low on the impact factor index, have been very influential in the area of social science research, publication, and are instrumental in the process of knowledge production in Africa. Furthermore, the accuracy of the impact factor can sometimes be in questions as journals employ the use of different devices to ensure that the impact factor is high. For instance, by using self-citations, which is a system where an author in a journal will cite their own articles in subsequent works in order for the impact factor to be reflected. But actually, this is just a tip of the iceberg. In the next part, we'll have a discussion on how funding affects the legitimate forms of knowledge. It costs money to produce knowledge and the distribution of resources globally is imbalanced. While you were talking, my mind was immediately drawn to the thoughts of Obama, where he details how the World Bank policies discouraged university education in Africa because they believed that it was primary education which held the potential to translate into more widespread benefits for the society. Despite pushback from Africa, the World Bank remained inviolable in their commitment to this policy and it became woven as a condition into their provision of development aid and loans. This resulted in generations of missed opportunity to produce African scholars, but generations where the Global North continued to educate persons at the highest level, in addition to exploiting additional unequal balances of power. I would extend Rodney's analysis of the dependency syndrome created in the exchange of primary goods to say that this also led to a dependence on knowledge from the North. And I think building on the legacies of colonialism, this would have exacerbated the situation where the global North knowledge has been perceived as superior because African countries now needed to play even more catch-up. Research reveals that there are career incentives for putting Northern scholars on reading lists as opposed to African ones. While there may be many implications of this, the one relevant to this debate is that the resulting prestige of being published attracts more funding to countries in the Global North than the Global South, inclusive of Africa. Consequently, African scholars generally have less funding and support for their research and publication. And remember, research costs money. Additionally, the Global North comprises several resource-laden donors and governments who choose to finance the research of scholars from these countries. Furthermore, when we combine the less favorable economic climate in African countries, the structural challenges facing African scholars, and the comparative paucity of scholars, it would seem impervious to good reason to not capitalize on alternative professional endeavors. Thus, what is witnessed is an increased occupation of African scholars in external donor-funded research projects. This diverts time away from the righteous endeavor of African knowledge production. And if we have learned anything from the legacies of foreign involvement in Africa, is that these are seldom underpinned by altruistic motives. There is no room for autonomy in determining the focus of these foreign-funded projects. Rather, 
African scholars are invited to assist in the realization of foreign objectives. Thus, even when funding does make its way to African borders, it is not concomitant with creative license. My mind is also drawn to Mambani's reflection on the state of affairs in universities like Makarere University and what is witnessed in the commercialization of higher education. As professors and academics become warped into various exploitative yet lucrative teaching arrangements, the commitment to research and consequently knowledge production is compromised. The scholars are drawn to these arrangements again because of a lack of funding. Consequently, there is simply not enough time to commit to producing quality research. There are heavy teaching loads, pressures to formulate attractive courses which will attract more funding, but yet limited funding for research and conferences. The research also reveals that the interests between domestic and foreign scholars differ. Scholars conducting research on Africa from outside Africa have starkly different interests than Africans conducting research about Africa. The keywords differ. For example, the decision to study war as opposed to transformation, or the decision to study violence as opposed to policy. But it is those foreign scholars who have access to more sources of funding, and it is therefore their research which is gaining prominence, or moreover, legitimacy. And of course, this will skew the perceptions which the rest of the world or even various African countries themselves hold of Africa. Finally, this impact factor then also determines which departments get funding in institutions such as UK Research Excellence Framework. This creates a loop where organizations have access to larger amounts of funding than those which fund domestic African research, but continue perpetuating a bias against African scholars. As a result, the research they produce gets more money owing to impact factor for the cycle to continue. And I can't help but to perceive a nexus between Bordeaux's varying forms of capital here, where the social capital, the networks, are allowing cultural capital, the knowledge produced, the research, to achieve economic capital, the reward as funding for the research having a high impact factor. Actually, the experience of the Council for Development of Social Science Research in Africa, CORDISA, the CORDISA is the longest standing Pan-African intellectual organization on the continent, and it was established with the primary objective of fostering greater collaboration between African scholars and has acquired a reputation for challenging the marginalization and fragmentation of African scholarship. In fact, CORDISA was one of the few pockets of resistance during the battle of structural adjustment programs in the African continent in the 1980s and 1990s. An interesting and intriguing study by Naomi Hoffman found that structural adjustment fundamentally reshaped the intellectual and material underpinnings of Cordesa. In the short term, Cordesa's analysis of structural adjustment led to considerable intellectual and organizational innovation so that it grew in size and influence. In the long term, however, structural adjustment eroded the public universities upon which Cordesa relied. This eroded the mechanism to maintain its intellectual vigor and the democratic character and increased Cordesa dependency on donors. So if you explore Cordesa website, you can see that most of its donors are from high-income countries and that brings us again to what we have just highlighted about the dynamics 
between financing and recognition of knowledge produced. However, I would argue that Cordisa is still an active and a major central and central knowledge producer. And if you went through some of what Cordisa is publishing, you would see that the Institute is strategically tackling some of those challenges that we have mentioned. So, for example, a very intriguing study published in Cordisa by Theopolis O'Carey in which he was questioning if there is one science and if so, is it the Western science? Uh, so in his study he cited Thomas Kohn's discussion about the history of science and interestingly he highlighted the fact that when we explore the history of science we can realize that it's almost impossible to see sciences produced out of pure reasoning without any packages of cultural prejudice pursued without interest or without any presuppositions. Accordingly, and building on the, this critique for natural science, we can replicate the same question to ask if there is one music, and if so, is it Western music, and if there one philosophy, and if so, is it the Western philosophy? And one could ask the same question with regard to theology, mythology, history, and of course development. So that brings us to a point where we can see how crucial are the non-Western knowledge traditions. Again, if we use James Scott's thesis for analogy, where in his famous book, Seeing Like a State, he highlighted that for the state to take action, it has to see. And this process starts by simplifying complex realities into very limited objects that can be calculated and later on controlled. Most significantly, this process leads to surpassing local knowledge which are embedded in local interests and practices and lead to severe consequences rather than what meant by those policies or actions in the first place. And he mentioned several examples where the state action leading to adverse consequences. From this analogy, one can see the damage that results from marginalizing or excluding knowledge produced within the societies on the state level. And then we can take it to the international level to see the damage that resulted from the structural adjustment programs and the misconceptions about the African societies. So I would say that Cordisa is a good representation for the importance of non-Western knowledge product production traditions in highlighting some of the misconceptions, misrepresentations, and even indirecting the research agenda and priorities. But that would lead us to a question, to question different aspects of knowledge production, such as language and how it relates to the broader discussion about hierarchies of knowledge. Right. And to better understand these hierarchies of knowledge and these power relations, it is pertinent to see the words that are often used to differentiate the knowledge systems that are produced in the West and the ones that have existed in the African or the Oriental part of the world. We would often hear, read or associate words like objective, progressive or even universal for the quote-unquote Western scientific knowledge systems. While on the other hand, the legitimacy of non-Western knowledge systems has been at the behest of what the former categorizes as objective or empirical. Although it has been proven time and again that this is hardly ever as true as the word scientific knowledge implies and predominantly is influenced by ideologies and beliefs of the time, as, Ma as Mazin rightly pointed out before. These created hierarchies of knowledge, or rather the boxed binaries of knowledge systems, are further translated and solidified into contemporary times as well. 
The knowledge base that has existed and evolved since ages in African countries does not only become narrow as a result, but is also dismissed on the partisan grounds of credibility. Stories from the continent, for example, or even the songs that have long existed and acted as tools of resistance are marginalized in many ways from the legitimate knowledge base, despite its ability to make ideas about development, history and policy reach a larger population in a more compelling way. So in this last section, we also want the listeners to think about language. Largely, the knowledge produced on Africa is rarely written in local languages. The knowledge produced within the continent struggles to find its way in the larger global discourse as well. African scholars and writers find themselves at different places in this spectrum of language debate. Some authors like the Things Fall Apart writer Chinu Achebe or Chimamanda Adichie believe that their way of, of decolonizing is to make the colonizer's language their own, or rather to Africanize English, to put it simply. Achebe interestingly points out the difference between quote-unquote proper English and what he calls African English, which in his own words carry the weight of his African experience. Although on the other end of it is the famous Kenyan novelist Gugi Thiongo, whose revolutionary ideas and work, especially on language, at least made my teenage years reformative. He saw his art and contribution to the literary base not only as a creative pursuit, but also as an active act of resistance. He denounced writing in English after a point in his career, which according to him reflected the colonial vestiges and goes on to write in Kikyu and Kiswahili. He also makes a powerful point around the fact that when languages and knowledge systems are so intertwined between the colonizer and the colonized, it is hard to differentiate between what is local and what is an imposed reality. And here's what Googie has to say about his reasoning behind the emphasis on the use of African languages in the production of local knowledge. Me, the way I look at it is this, you know, if all languages, for me, are very wonderful human creations, human achievement, whether it's English, Gujarati, Swahili, wonderful languages, but the problem has been in a system of oppression and aggression. The languages and cultures are seen as a hierarchy. Some languages say, oh, we are better than another, you or my, we are better than that language, or this culture is better than, uh, higher, not even right. better, higher. So it's, it's in terms of hierarchy of power relationship between languages. It is also interesting to think about how normalized it is in Western academia to talk and write about the people you don't even speak the language of. However, the aim is not to prefer one language over the other, but attempt to dismantle these hierarchies where the knowledge produced in local languages or even the translated work is not outrightly dismissed and is given fairer consideration. So we hope the listeners could think about this in the terms of the structure of global knowledge production system and how it is hegemonized by higher income countries and are limiting the impact of non-Western knowledge production traditions and how it is and how it has led to the distortion of how realities actually look like. The resultant distorted picture of these realities then create misguided policy frameworks. The seriousness of this consequence makes the study, the revision and the decolonizing act of knowledge production all the more important. 
We hope our take has been useful to you in some way and has rendered an open space for new ideas and new questions. On that note, thank you for listening.